since the time of Tampa, which brought the whole treatment of refugees issue to the fore, um, most Australians do not seem troubled by the fact that people seeking refuge in Australia get treated dreadfully. Um, and they're treated like criminals. They're put in detention, which is another form of jail. And um, Australians seem to be quite comfortable with that. The following is a conversation with Julian Burnside. Julian is a barrister, a human rights and refugee advocate, and an author. He practices principally in commercial litigation, trade practices, and administrative law. He has also been involved in some of Australia's most significant and seminal court cases. In 2009, he was made an officer of the Order of Australia, quote, for service as a human rights advocate, particularly for refugees and asylum seekers, to the arts as a patron and fundraiser, and to the law. On the podcast, we discuss the Australian government's treatment of refugees and Indigenous Australians, amongst other things. His insights were illuminating, his stories were visceral, but his outlook and perspective were ultimately inspiring. I hope you enjoy the episode. I guess the English people who arrived with the first fleet <clears throat> would be described as boat people. They undoubtedly came here by boat. They undoubtedly came here without an invitation from the long-term inhabitants. The, I mean, the length of time people have lived in Australia is astonishing. You know, the recent um, episode of the Rio Tinto um, blowing up the Jukan, the cave in the Jukan Gorge, which had a lot of Aboriginal... Um, paintings in it. <clears throat> the um, to put it in historical context, um, the Great Pyramid at Giza is forty six hundred years old. the The paintings in the Dukan Gorge are forty six thousand years old, and just far less respected. Ah, far less respected. Hmm. I mean, can you imagine if Rio Tinto blew up the Great Pyramid at Giza? How is there no legal protection for that for indigenous well, communities? <clears throat> apparently, the um, Apparently, the what what was done by Rio Tinto was authorised. I don't know how that comes to be, but I suppose it's because um, for a very long time we've treated Aboriginal people as mere commodities. We've taken the view that whatever they can be persuaded to agree to is okay, and uh, that's where we are. And that they can be exploited by us, and they can be exploited by us, and they are exploited by us for mm-hmm. sure. And what is interesting is that um, when you consider the way Aboriginal people in Australia are treated these days, um, we we took their land from them. We called it terra nullius on the footing that they didn't have a notion of ownership. In fact, the connection between Aboriginal people and their land is like the connection between child and parent. Um, we would 
regarded as horrifying if children treated their parents in that way. So we took the land from them and caused them immense harm. Um, later we took their children from them and caused them even greater harm. And we now regard them as a hopeless bunch, but we've never stopped to look around and wonder, could it be partly our fault? Do you think the Black Lives Matter movement of the last year is going to move the needle at all on the rights for Indigenous Australians? Uh, it could. <clears throat> um, we've seen a, an absurd number of deaths, Aboriginal deaths in custody, um, I think the highest in the world. Um, Black Lives Matter, really starting with the filmed murder of George Floyd, um, could focus our attention on what we've been doing. How long it lasts remains to be seen. It was interesting how it, the problem had always been there and, in fact, it had probably been worse in the past than it is even today. Uh, it's just interesting how to light that spark. It just needed that visceral uh, footage of what's actually taking yep. place. I agree. I agree completely. Um, the fact that it was filmed for, what, eight and a half, nine minutes... Mm. Um, made an immense difference and there have been lots and lots of uh, black deaths in America which have not caused the same, created the same public outcry because they haven't been seen. Tong Quang Lu, who was a political refugee from the Vietnam War, uh, said of Australia when he arrived, the white Australia policy had been abolished, the public opinion, however, had not been turned around. Uh, was that true then and are there still echoes of the white Australia policy today? Um, I think I think there are, and the reason I say that is that um, since the time of Tampa, which brought the whole treatment of refugees issue to the fore, um, most Australians do not seem troubled by the fact that people seeking refuge in Australia get treated dreadfully, um, and they're treated like criminals. They're put in detention, which is another form of jail, and... Um, Australians seem to be quite comfortable with that. Do you think that politicians should lead public opinion on this or follow public opinion? Is it uh, the Prime Minister's responsibility to uh, support the harsh treatment of refugees if that's what the people want or is it his responsibility to dissuade his constituents from that point of view? I think they should tell us the facts and um, that's the best you can expect of politicians. Mind you, I think politicians on both sides are pretty dreadful. Um, there, it's it's horrifying to think that we've got um, several streams of people who are locked up without committing any offence. They're locked up indefinitely um, under the Migration Act. They can be held in detention for as many years as it takes. Um, and these are people who are innocent. I mean, they they come here seeking protection. And they get thrown into what is effectively a jail. Now, that's dreadful. Um, it's, it's very interesting, though, that there are three strands of refugees who come into Australia. One are the people who've been handpicked by Australian um, authorities in refugee camps overseas. They're brought here, they're treated well. It's a very, very good scheme and it deserves much more notice than it gets. The second are people who come to Australia with a visa 
for example, on business or tourism or sport or whatever study. Um, and once they've cleared passport control at the point of their arrival by aeroplane, they then seek asylum. They are allowed to live in the community without difficulty. They're not regarded as a risk. About 30 to 40% of them ultimately succeed in their claim for asylum. Um, the third group are people who come from countries that are notorious for generating refugees, um, like Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, and so on. And they, they can't get a visa. And so they can't come to Australia in any way except um, using a people smuggler, which is far more expensive than an aeroplane ticket. And far more dangerous. And far more dangerous. And um, because they arrived in Australia um, without a visa, they are treated as unlawful non-citizens and so they're put into to detention until they're either removed or given a visa. Um, they succeed in their asylum claims in roughly 90% of cases. So we, we are totally indifferent to the ones who are probably not refugees and we mistreat the ones who probably are refugees. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. And, and the way we treat them is deeply shocking. Most Australians, I think, would be truly shocked if they understood how badly we treat people who've done nothing worse than come here seeking protection. Um, the, the in, at the end of the Second World War, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, the widow of FDR, um, set her heart on a new project which was um, creating a safe space for refugees because, of course, a lot of the Jews trying to escape Germany had been refugees. Um, she formulated the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. One of the countries that assisted her with that was Australia, which then had a population of about 7.5 million people. Um, the uh, Declaration of Human Rights was accepted overwhelmingly by the General Assembly of the United Nations on the 10th of December 1948. And the person who presided over the General Assembly was Doc Evatt, an Australian. Um, it's interesting that Article 14, I think it is, of the Universal Declaration says that all human beings have the right to seek asylum. And we have turned our backs on that. We contributed substantially to it, and yet we've turned our backs on it because our politicians call them illegals. Um, we treat them like criminals. The general public who've got better things to do than concentrate on the fine detail of it, see them being locked up like criminals, hear them called illegals and assume that they are criminals and should be treated accordingly. They're not. They're not criminals. To what you were saying with us turning our back uh, on uh, those international agreements, uh, could you perhaps describe what dualism is uh, and how does it relate to Australia's approach to, uh, say, the Refugee Convention of uh, 1951 and how does it relate to how we moderate international law into our domestic law? Um, I, I frankly don't know what dualism is. Well, I was reading, just in, uh, doing a bit of research for this, apparently dualism is a way of uh, there's international law and then there's uh, national law in each country and um, a country can be party to uh, an international agreement yep. uh, but then their own governments moderate yep. to what extent uh, they take on um, the details of that. Mm. 
Yeah, well, certainly there's a huge gap between international legal provisions in relation to refugees and Australia's treatment of them. Um, so if that's dualism, we do pretty badly in it. Mm. Um, as a matter of international law, the, there are various human rights conventions, including the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights and the Refugees Convention, um, make it clear that we should treat them humanely and we should give them protection where they deserve it. Um, but we just don't do that. We treat them appallingly. We treat them so badly that some actually ask to be returned to the country... That they're fleeing. ..that they're fleeing, mm. even though they've been persecuted there. Um, and at the moment... Are they allowed to do that? If, are they allowed to leave Manus Island or Nauru to go back to uh, their original place of origin? Um, they can ask to be removed to Iran, for example, and... Um, so, yes, the fact is they can ask. But it's a horrible decision to have to make. Oh, pretty mm. tough decision when you consider the way people are treated in countries which persecute groups. Where are the majority of uh, refugees and asylum seekers coming from at, at the moment? Where's the main humanitarian crisis that people are fleeing? Um, a lot from Iran. Um, still some from Afghanistan, but they're mainly in the historical basket. Um Going towards Europe, there are quite a few who come from various African countries, but I, I don't think I can tell you with any accuracy the largest source. Was it the Vietnam War that really brought the issue of refugees to the forefront in uh, Australian media? I don't think it was... The, well, the tail end of the Vietnam War, the, um, the notion of uh, detention for people who were in Australia seeking asylum, who'd come without a visa, was a response of the Keating Labor government to the arrival of Cambodian refugees. Now, that could be seen as a, a sort of tail end of the Vietnam. Part of the same conflict. Yeah. Mm. Uh, a few years ago, you recommended a book to me uh, on this topic, Asylum by Boat, by Claire Higgins. Uh, in it, Higgins writes uh, that, quote, a view was taken that if the government had to let a person stay it was best to do so without publicly demonstrating it. Uh, how much has the Australian government tried to control the narrative around asylum seekers and why is this so important to them? Um, they have tried to control the narrative almost completely and it seems to be very important to them, although I don't know why. I think they are in a position where they could set the narrative. They could say, look, these are good people and they deserve better treatment than we're giving them and we're going to treat them like human beings because they are. And again, that goes to leading public opinion rather than being beholden to it. Yes. Is it because of this desire to control the narrative that they have also in more re recent years set up these offshore detention centres to sort of try and send a message to asylum seekers that you're not welcome here? That would seem to be the case because people who arrived after, was it July 2013, are automatically sent to... Uh, Manus if they are lone males or Nauru if they're female or part of a family group. So they, uh, do they break up the families? Uh, no, no, they don't. No, they don't. No. Um, that's, that's the only nod to something like yeah. decency. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, so they're, they're sent to one or other of those places and the, that's where they languish for years on end, and 
uh, there is a provision which says that they may never be settled in Australia. So they might be detained at Nauru and Manus for, for years, but like, for the rest of their or, life, for, potentially six or seven years is the standard at the moment. And um, but when you say never settled, never settled, you mean never settled in Australia? Never settled in yeah. Australia. Right. Yeah, and settled where Papua New Guinea? Well, Papua New Guinea, which is a lot bigger than Nauru. Nauru is very small. People don't realise just how tiny it is. Nauru is an island in the Pacific. Its land area makes it slightly smaller than Tullamarine Airport and it's yet we regard it as a place where we can simply shunt refugees we don't want. And yet nearly all of the people we've sent there have ultimately succeeded in their claim for refugee status um, assessed by the Nauruans according to the rules given to them by Australia. Why do... What is the relationship between Australia and Papua New Guinea? Why, why is it that uh, they take... Um, our refugees and why do we send them there in the first place? Um, I think it is because Manus Island um, has an airport base which is run by Australia and um, I just assume that PNG needs the money and we throw lots of money at them to... To to do our dirty work. Yeah. Mm. Is there bipartisan support in the Australian government for the offshore detention centres? There seems to be. Um, the automatic removal to PNG or Nauru um, was an invention of, I think, was it the second Rudd government or possibly the Gillard government, and it was embraced by the Liberals right. when they took government in 2013. Do you think there's room for an Australian political party to adopt a humanitarian approach to asylum seekers as part of an election campaign? Um, I, I think the answer, I hope the answer to that is yes. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I stood for the Greens um, against Josh Frydenberg in Kuyong because that's where I live um, la- in 2019 last year and I've been asked to stand again in the next election, which oh. is probably going to be late 2021. 2021. And is, are you using... Are you uh, taking this as your chief uh, issue? It's going to be one of the issues. Right. Um, I mean, I, I actually I take the rather unpopular view that most MPs of the two major parties are horrible people who act not in the interest of Australians generally, not in the interest of Australia as a country, but in their own interest and in the interest of their backers. Has that made you very unpopular? within political circles by adopting that view? Probably. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, they don't tell I you. don't mix in political <laughs> circles very much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you could perhaps go into um, what the Howard government's uh, Pacific solution was and what impact that had on refugees coming to Australia uh, and perhaps describe for the listeners uh, what Australia's migration zone is. Yeah, the, um, the history of the treatment of refugees in Australia is quite interesting Um, It all started with the Tampa, um, and at the time of the Tampa case, which I was involved in, um, I got involved in it knowing nothing about refugees, Um, but here the captain of the Tampa had rescued this bunch of people at the request of the Australian government, uh, a bunch of Hazaras from Afghanistan, whose boat, the Palapa, had begun to fall apart in the Indian Ocean. And... uh, 
the captain of the Tampa, who I met later, um, threw a rope ladder over the deck when he found the Palapa. He thought that it might have had 50-odd people in it. And he was amazed when 438 people climbed up the rope ladder onto the decks of the Tampa. He, he thought it would have 50 just based on the size of the boat. Based on the size of the boat, yeah. Wow. And that gave him a bit of a problem because not only were some of the people who climbed up the rope ladder in difficult physical condition, um, his boat was licensed to carry 50 people. He had 47 crew and all of a sudden 438 unexpected passengers. So he headed toward Christmas Island, which was on his route of travel, and was told by the Australian government, you are forbidden to enter Australian waters off Christmas Island, which is up in the northwest of Australia. Um, he decided to defy that, and in doing so, he acted according to the highest principles of the, the sea. Um, the Government of Australia sent out the SAS, who took control of the bridge of the Tampa at gunpoint. So here he's stuck. He can't go forward, can't go back. And uh, that's what the fight was all about. Now, interestingly, the... Uh, trial of the Tampa case ran for a few days and the decision in favour of the asylum seekers was handed down in the federal court at 2.15 in the afternoon Melbourne time on the 11th of September 2001. Eight hours later the attack on America happened and all of a sudden anyone who was Muslim was a criminal and a threat to all of us and because it was re reckoned back then that most boat people were Muslim, um, treating them like criminals seemed to be a sensible thing. It was in the context of that case that the federal government created the Pacific Solution, badly named, but they were in a hurry, and uh, that was a deal with Nauru and Papua New Guinea to use part of their land uh, to lock up people who'd come to Australia seeking asylum. So they used, uh, when you say the attack on America, 9-11, yep. obviously, so they used uh, the Islamophobe, well... It's hard to call it Islamophobia at the time, given that, you know, it's, they, they were genuinely under attack, but at the same time they used that public sentiment against uh, Muslims as a green light to yeah. run through all these yeah. Uh, laws. Yeah, and and it was um, in that context that uh, John Howard started calling boat people illegals. Right, and that had never, that was, that had never been used before so that So far term. as I'm aware, that hadn't been used publicly before. Uh, all Australia's politicians sort of puppets of the same... Uh, special interests in in relation to the refugees. I mean, they. It surprises me that they all adopt the same party line. Yeah. Uh, I mean, has anyone has anyone taken a more humanitarian approach? Um, oddly, in his first term of government, Kevin Rudd did. Uh, in late two thousand and eight, early two thousand and nine, I think he basically wound down the Pacific Solution, and he brought people from Nauru, particularly, um, into Australia. All that is except for two, two blokes who were on Nauru who had been, who were regarded as um, potential terrorists. He didn't let them in. Right. Interestingly, um, that ended up, that ended up in um, an interesting case in the federal court because one of the, one of the uh, supposed terrorists had a nervous breakdown when he learned that he would have to spend arguably the rest of his life on Nauru and he was medically evacuated from Nauru to Brisbane uh, 
And um, whilst he was in hospital in Brisbane being treated for his nervous breakdown, he was reassessed as a genuine refugee and not as a terrorist. The other bloke was contacted by the Swedish authorities and was assessed as a genuine refugee by them after a one-hour interview. And that just shows how efficient other, other governments are with... How efficient they are, but also how... And it takes us years. ..how false the, the uh, attitude of the Australian government was. I just saw in the news the other day, actually, there was a uh, protest to the Medivac, um, Medivac... Medivac, yeah. ..law. Could you just explain what that is uh, and uh, what the Australian government's trying to do in relation to it at yep. the moment? The Medivac legislation was... Uh, passed by the Parliament against the wishes of the Liberals and they were very cheesed off that it came in. It involved uh, the position where uh, a group of medical people in Australia could speak to a person on Nauru or Manus and assess them as needing medical treatment and if they needed medical treatment then they could be moved uh, to Australia for that treatment. There is a number of people in Australia have been moved from uh, one or other of those countries, ostensibly for medical treatment. One of them, who I'm acting for at the moment, uh, has been in Australia in detention, even though, A, he was assessed by PNG as a refugee, and B, he's been here 18 months and has not received the medical treatment that he was removed for. What does what medical treatment does he need? Um it's a heart problem. But it's absolutely amazing. They they shuffle these people around and... Willy-nilly and just... Yeah. Is that part of the strategy to uh, wear them down psychologically as well? It would seem to be. Uh, and that is just the indefinite uh, detentions mm. does that as well? Well, this bloke was locked up in Manus for six years or so. He's now been locked up in Australia for, for one and a half years. Yeah. He yeah. arrived after 2013 or after the July 2013 and uh, he's been in Australia now for a year and a half, roughly, and has not received the treatment that he was brought here for and is going mad. He is actually asked to be removed back to that PNG, is. back to PNG. What are, I mean, I just sort of, I'd like to talk about uh, the psychological effects on uh, the refugees uh, in, in the detention centres in general. I assume self-harm is involved. I assume um, people just go absolutely crazy being locked up for six years for having done nothing wrong. Yeah. It is devastating. Um, there's one family I acted for who came to Australia. They got to Christmas Island. Uh, they were not Muslim. They were from a pre-Christian sect in Iran. And in Iran, that sect were treated very badly. Um, they And fled. so just to give a bit of context as well, when you say treated badly, just to sort of point to why these people have to leave, what, how, was, how was Iran treating people like, um, of that? So. They were, for example, um, one of the stories that I recall is that the mother went into a shop and she wanted to buy a fish for dinner, okay? So she pointed at the fish in the, in the fish bowl or whatever it was, and her finger touched the water, the owner of the shop insisted that she buy all the fish because she had contaminated the water by touching it. That's one... Because she comes from a different religious sect. Because she came from a different religious sect, yeah. Anyway, 
um, they they fled Iraq. Oh, when when the um, the the eleven year old daughter or eleven at the relevant time, when that daughter was sexually molested by a Muslim caretaker, I think, at the school she attended, the father uh, went to the police and protested. He was arrested for the fact that he'd laid a complaint and he managed to escape prison that night and by two o'clock the next morning, the whole family had left Iran. So it's, uh, it's completely inaccurate to uh, label any of these people as economic refugees, or which is, oh. which is the claims that the Australian government often sure. level at these people. Let, let, let them say that. But um, the fact is that uh, of all the boat people, um, around about 90% ultimately succeed in their claim to be fleeing persecution and therefore satisfying the test in the Refugees Convention. Um, calling them economic refugees overlooks the fact that, of course, in Australia, where they're not being persecuted, their economic circumstances improve. It's almost a redundant accusation to level at it's, someone. They don't come here because they want to make more money. Mm. They come here because they want to escape persecution. Mm. Anyway, this family fled Iran um, and got to... It's a pity for them they turned south instead of north. If they had headed towards Europe, they probably would have been treated a bit better. They headed south, got... Using a people smuggler, they got to um, Christmas Island. Um, on Christmas Island, they were assessed as... Well, they were understood as seeking asylum. They were placed in what was then the Woomera Detention Centre in the South Australian desert. And after about 15 or 18 months there, they were all doing it really, really tough. I mean, back then, it was holding more people than it was designed for, and they were being treated very badly. So um, the all the family were doing it hard, but the 11-year-old girl especially, she had given up. She'd stopped eating, she'd stopped grooming herself, um, and, and there's been examples of 10 and 11-year-olds attempting suicide. Yeah, 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 yeah. She, um, uh, her circumstances came to the attention of a psychiatrist who came from Sydney, I think, um, and he went to Woomera and spoke to her, spoke to the family. Um, in his report, he exhibited a drawing which the girl had done. It was a drawing of a bird in a cage with a padlock on the door of the cage, and she said that she was the bird. Um, anyway, he said that she needed daily psychiatric help, and uh, back then in Woomera, if you needed psychiatric help, you would get to see the visiting psychiatrist maybe once every six or seven months. Um, now, the department, um, to their credit, moved the family from Woomera in the South Australian desert to Maribyrnong in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And that's where I first came across them. Um, the, the, for the first few weeks of their stay in Maribyrnong, nobody came to see the child, even though the reason for moving them was that she needed daily psychiatric help. Um, on a Sunday night in May of 2002, while her mother and father and her young sister were in the mess hall having dinner, this little kid alone in their cell took a bedsheet and hanged herself. Um, but she was only little and she didn't know how to tie the knot, so she was still suffocating when they came back to the cell. Um, she was immediately taken 
her and her mother were taken to the general hospital nearby. Um, the, they were taken by two ACM guards. So as a matter of legal analysis, they are still in immigration detention because they're in the presence of two guards. And uh, Konkarapana Giotidis, who had not long before set up the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre and who was looking after their asylum claim, heard about this, and he went to the hospital at about 9, 9.15 that night and said good day to the guards who know him pretty well because he's a regular visitor at Maribyrnong. He said he just wanted to speak to the mother to see if there was anything he could do to help. And their answer to him was, lawyers visiting ours in immigration detention are 9 to 5 and they sent him away. And he then rang me at home that night. He That's... rang me at home that night and told me what had happened and it's that case that explains the fact that I'm still now, almost 20 years later, still determined to get a bit of justice into that system. And it's stuck in your mind after 20 years. Yeah, it did. The little girl um, uh, was assessed as needing psychiatric help. She was sent to, um, I can't remember where it was, some, was it the Austin Hospital, um, where they were a child and adolescent mental health unit. She was there for 12 months while she was gradually getting better. And when she was well enough, they decided to put her back in detention. So they did. That's just that drawing. That's just the most heartbreaking. Yeah. But just like a, I mean, almost just like in a shocking way, just like what a work of art. Mm. And it's just so the sort of self-awareness for an 11-year-old to know what situation she's in. Mm. But that's not an unusual story for a, 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 a child refugee, is it? Not especially. Um, in varying degrees, uh, similar stories. Ch- children... Uh, distinguish themselves by being remarkably perceptive of what's going on and they have a capacity for recognising injustice when they see it. Telling something, telling it how it is. Mm. So that, that case, they ultimately were accepted as refugees, I'm glad to say. Does it affect you psychologically having to... Uh, hear and deal with these stories and argue for these people? Um, I guess I have hardened since being involved in so many refugee cases. Um, And, I mean, I I used not to be able to tell that story, despite its effect. Just because it was too close to heart? Too too, too upsetting. Um, And especially having met the family and seen the effect on them of the way we're treating them. And really, all Australians need to understand what we're doing to people who are innocent of any offence. That's why the illegals tag is so powerful and why the fact that we put them in effectively in prisons and treat them like prisoners, that the public generally think, yeah, well, they're just criminals. And the majority of the public aren't going to uh, take the time to... I mean, the thing with labels is that they they only work for people who aren't willing to actually look into it. For most Australians, that's the yeah, majority. For most Australians, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and both political, both major political parties um, set their campaigning to mm. where the majority views are. It's very, even if their majority views are false, and they've helped create the falsity. Is it a complete misnomer to call, despite the despite the um, 
way we treat uh, refugees, is it a complete misnomer to call them a queue jumper, talking about labels? Yes, it is. There isn't a queue. Hmm. That's the problem. There's not a queue. Everyone who comes here gets processed regardless, so it's... Well, processed, it takes a while. Hmm. But everyone... Um, hmm. But they get processed, yeah. Hmm. The queue. And the real question is, why should they be put in detention initially? You know, look at that family from Biloela in Queensland. Um, they've, they've obviously attracted the affection and trust of the community of Biloela. Um, the Australian government has decided that they're not entitled to stay in Australia, um, even though the two children were born here. Um, so what the government would do, I think, is remove the parents and separate the family that way, or remove the parents and the two Australian children. Um, now, the community of Biloela seems to be strongly in favour of those kids and of the family, and um, they, the government, I think, is not attracting any real support by mistreating the kids that way. I mean, if you start from the proposition that people who come to Australia seeking protection from persecution are human beings then the question is, how should human beings be treated? And how would you feel if you were treated the way we are treating them? When, when they point to... Is a way that terrorist groups, for example, try to get terrorists into another country, would, would they even send them as a refugee, given that? Not, not that I'm aware, because if they're terrorists, they can afford to come on a, a visa, maybe dodgy, mm. by aeroplane. Right. So they'd take other avenues to get here. Well, they're not going to be much good no. if, they're, if they're stuck in detention for yeah. years on end. Yeah. Because um, the, other, the other group of people in detention are people who've come to Australia and who've lived on um, a visa, you know, like a resettlement visa of some sort, for a long time, mm. and then they end up with a penalty, a prosecution. And... Uh, there's a provision, Section 501 of the Migration Act, which gives the uh, government the power to cancel a person's visa if they have committed an offence. Um, now, the, the most striking example of that was a Swedish couple who came to Australia um, and the wife, they, they took out citizenship, the wife became pregnant, they decided to have one last trip to Sweden before she had the baby... And uh, the, whilst they were in Sweden, there were problems with the pregnancy and the doctors in Sweden said, look, you should probably wait here until you've had the baby and then go back to Australia. So she did that. They came back to Australia when the baby was like one or two weeks old. And 30-something years later, he, and he, he lived on a... Um, permanent residency visa for years, um, but 20 or 30 years later he ran into problems with the law, got a conviction, and so the government threatened to remove him from the country because here he was um, without a visa, stuck in Australia, and no asylum claim, of course. Um, the matter ended up in the High Court. The High Court said, yes, you have power under the Act to remove him, and so the government took him and dumped him on the, on the street in Stockholm, and he spent the, the next while 
uh, camped outside the Australian Embassy in Stockholm until eventually he was brought back to Australia. But that's that, such ruthless. It is utterly ruthless. I mean, the legal system did not do justice to that to that man. Is the sophistication of a country's legal system a good barometer for how uh, good and humanitarian that country is in general? Um, no, I think how good and humanitarian that country is probably depends on what laws it has to protect human rights. And in Australia at federal level, we have no laws that protect human rights. Do we treat our refugees worse than America treats us? Um, Do they have offshore detention centres in uh, other I countries? I don't think they have offshore detention. They, their big problem with refugee applicants are people who come up through Mexico and... Um, the Trump government uh, exceeded anything we've done by separating children from their parents at the border and now they've got, what, 600-odd kids whose parents can't be found. Now, that's pretty dreadful. Uh, It's interesting, too, that um, when Trump became president, he had a conversation with Malcolm Turnbull in relation to the arrangement that had been reached with the previous administration about taking various refugees from Australia. And uh, he quizzed Turnbull about, you know, why should we take your criminal refugees from Manus or Nauru? And Turnbull pointed out to him that they have not, they are not criminals, they haven't committed any offence. And Trump apparently said, oh, you're even worse than we are. (laughs) There's a little slip up from Turnbull. Yeah, well. God, that's dark. (laughs) It is. Um. Immigration's always been sort of a politicised issue and it's a generalisation to say so, but left-wing people tend to have a more open and humanitarian approach to conservatives, at least at their worst, will say, um, you know, they're stealing our jobs or, like we said before, there's a threat to national security. Um, But is it... It's always seemed to me like a smart idea and even a traditionally conservative idea to have an accelerated immigration policy. And correct me if I'm wrong, because... Certainly not an economist, but isn't an accelerated immigration policy what stimulates an economy, creates more jobs, uh, creates a workforce that can put more into the economy than they reap? Um, and isn't that how you become a country to be reckoned with, like militarily, financially? Well, yeah, I mean, an increase in your population, I would have thought, was probably a good thing economically for any country. Um, there's, I can see room for doubt about that as we... Um, head into circumstances where there's arguably more people in the country than we can support. Is that, is that, I think I that, that. that is one view. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is one view, even though we export food. Right. Um, I mean, So we although, technically can, we, we could support a bigger population, but we just need to change our trade policy. We would need to adjust our trade policy. Uh, but there is, I mean, if you view the thing globally... The world's population of human beings is arguably too great, Um, although there's a lot of evidence that increased education, especially of women, tends to... That's the main uh, correlation between a healthy economy, isn't it, is uh, the degree to which a country has rights for uh, women. Uh, Doesn't that generally correlate with a strong economy, I've heard? Um, I think that's right, but... Try persuading politicians. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I, mean, I, I don't see any respectable argument for Australia treating people so badly. 
And I mean, have a look at the Aboriginal people. How are we treating them? But that's what I'm saying. It seems so counterintuitive what we're doing, even to, from a selfish standpoint. It doesn't seem like... Uh, except that politicians have a skill at overcoming the selfishness or turning it around so that the selfish attitudes of people who know nothing about refugees or their circumstances or who know nothing about Aboriginal people or their circumstances, they're an easy prey. You know, we, we can do this for you. You'll be better off. And they turn it to their advantage. Yeah. In a logistical sense, how would you, if you were to uh, develop a more accelerated immigration policy, what would you do logistically? To Do you just need to hire more immigration officers? Do you need to, as you were saying, alter the trade agreements? You would, you would have to... Um, increase the number of people employed by the Department of Immigration because at the moment the processing is far too slow. Um, I would say we should um, liberalise our refugee policy. We shouldn't lock people up at all unless they were regarded on independent evidence as a terrorist threat. Um, I mean, I do believe every country is entitled to protect itself, uh, but... If we, if we get rid of mandatory detention, uh, that would be a good step in the right direction. Mm. And then if it turns out that suddenly Australia becomes a, a target for um, a lot of people seeking asylum, then reconsider the position. But at the moment we've got a tiny number of But people. wait until that happens. Wait until that happens. Mm. And then, then look at the facts and respond to the facts. The fact that our refugee policy is um, designed, I think, to meet the prejudice of the people and that prejudice has been created by the government, that worries me a lot. Mm. Points to uh, vices in the constituents rather than the government a little bit. Is that what you're saying? Um, if, if the Australian people, it seems like the Australian people want that. Yeah, maybe, but what the Australian people want is largely a product of what they've been told. Um, I don't believe that most Australians are bad people. And what I noticed once I became involved in the issue, uh, in the Tampa case, um, I've, I've noticed that a lot of our friends who previously would have agreed with the government have shifted their view. And that's partly because um, my wife, Kate Durham, um, responded to the Tampa case by saying, this is dreadful, it's not the way Australia is. Um, she said, Australians are basically decent people. Most Australian houses have got a spare room. We should set up spare rooms for refugees. That's what you do, isn't it? Yeah, eh? That's what you do as well, isn't it? Haven't you well, provided... Well, I, ne I never accept payment for refugee cases. Mm. Um, but you also, um, I remember when I was at your house, uh, you, you, don't you also provide housing to refugees? And, absolutely, and because as I said to Kate at the time, look, if we're going to persuade people to offer free accommodation in their home for refugees, we have to lead by example. Hmm. And the very first refugee who lived with us was a Uyghur from Xinjiang in China. And uh, since then it's mostly been... Afghan Hazaras, because they, for a long time, have been, you know, the most obvious refugees, um, like 
Jews from Germany in the 1930s. You know, you don't have what, to ask, you don't have to look very far to what, figure out. What was the gentleman or the woman's name uh, from Xinjiang who you first represented? Uh, it was a woman, and I can't remember okay. her name. Mm. Um, represented too many people pro bono, Julian. Yes, <laughs> yes, probably. Uh, although I must say, you know, in all of this, I, I think I think this matters a great deal. It's a, it's really about what character we have as a country. Mm. Um, now, as I was saying, a lot of our friends have met asylum seekers or refugees at our house and it, there's nothing more remarkable than the shift in their attitude once they actually once meet, they meet one. a refugee and they begin to see what it's all about. Mm. And again, to, that's like what we were saying at the start of the podcast, uh, sometimes it just takes a visceral experience yeah. of a situation yeah. uh, to actually change your mind on it. Yep. Has that happened for uh, a lot of people you know then? A, a lot uh, of people who have had uh, more pro-government uh, views on the issue after you've introduced them to uh, asylum seekers, they've changed their tune? Um, I think it's happened with all of our friends, um, which is not really surprising when you consider it. You know, these are human beings. And my experience of refugees suggests that refugees as a group are sort of like the rest of us. You know, most of them are just good people with maybe a few bad aspects. It's a bit kind to us. A very, a very small group are brilliant and a very small group uh, you really wouldn't want to meet them twice, mm. just like the rest of us. They're just ordinary human beings. But that's quite kind to us, I think. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think a lot of them are... A, I mean, the immigrant mentality is sort of something to be admired, I think, in general, you know, willing to sacrifice your, your life for the hope that uh, your children might... Uh, have the money to go to university yeah. or have a better life. Mm. Calling them immigrants, I think, misses the point a little bit. Mm. Uh, it's true they're immigrants in the sense that they come from another place. And when you think about it, most of the asylum seekers that we've seen, almost the refugees we've seen in recent years, have been people fleeing Central Asian Muslim countries. Mm. So they they come to a place with a different culture, a different language, and they chance their arm here. Hmm. Oh, I reckon that's, that takes immense courage. And the fact that they may be better off here than they would have been back there being persecuted, well, so what? Yeah, so what? What is your opinion on the situation in Xinjiang at the moment? Um, if you believe all the news reports, it's terrible getting, and getting worse. Um, but we'll see. But all of this overlooks the fact that my, you know, I mean, I've, I've been involved in all this human rights-related work for quite a while. Um, I'm still convinced that art matters more than law, matters more than anything I've ever done. Um, and I say that because if you think about it, everyone's heard of Leonardo da Vinci, everyone's heard of Ludwig van Beethoven, mm. everyone's heard of T Leo Tolstoy. Can anyone name a lawyer or an accountant or an economist who worked at the same place at the same time? Mm. And the answer usually is no. No. And if they were, they were just politicians as well. Yeah. 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 And I think um, we, we need to recognise the importance of the arts, especially right now, mm. where people in the performing arts have had a shocking time since the lockdown. And uh, I think the arts are profoundly important.
I heard this quote from uh, Francis Bacon in the – have you seen the David Sylvester interviews? No. They're, um, uh, Francis Bacon says uh, the true barometer for how great an artwork is is how well do you represent something without purely making an illustration of it, which I just thought was such a sort of – Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. I sort of push back a, a bit against the idea that all art is subjective, that, you know, everything can be interpreted in an infinite number of ways. And I push back against it because uh, I think it kills the competitive drive within art. You know, it's if we don't have a, uh, a way of saying that's good, that's bad, that's pretty good, um, I think it sort of kills uh, competitive artistic culture. Except that uh, the way we assess these things shifts with time. Mm. I mean, Van Gogh was not highly regarded during his life. Mm. Um, during Beethoven's time, one of the preceding generations of um, composers was sinking into obscurity, and that was J.S. Bach. Yeah. He was regarded as just a just mm. an also ran. Mm. And it's interesting that shortly after Beethoven's death, um, Mendelssohn wrote he wrote two piano trios, and the second piano trio in its final movement has two themes. The first theme is an original theme of his. The second starts with an extended quotation from a Bach cantata. Mm. And it was his way of saying, this guy was a great composer. Yeah, yeah, a nod to him. You know, James W. Turner's uh, The Slave Ship, yep. the painting, uh, to what you were saying about art mattering. I was watching Simon Shammer's uh, The Power of Art series on, uh, and on that episode uh, he was talking about how that painting, um, and just for the listeners, uh, Turner was a early 19th century uh, British landscape artist and he did a painting of uh, the Zorg, which I believe was a a ship that had picked up um, African slaves. Yes. And then on the way back, um, once their water had been contaminated, they realised that they didn't have enough water uh, for the rest of the journey and so they threw their um, African slaves who were legally at the time deemed property into the ocean mm. because if, if their property quote unquote, was destroyed at sea, they would receive the insurance claim for it back home. Yeah, yeah. And it was such an outrage at the time. Uh, and JMW Turner's uh, painting of it um, actually shifted public opinion um, around the issue of slavery um, and sort of helped the movement uh, that saw England abolish slavery. The, um, the Zorg is a very famous case or a famous ship. Mm. Um, my recollection of it is that when it was on its way from the east coast of Africa to the west coast of America, it was becalmed and because it was becalmed for a couple of weeks... What, becalmed? Hmm? Becalmed? Becalmed. What does that mean? Uh, it means that there was no wind. Oh, it. right. And uh, uh, the captain, Luke Collingwood, as I recall, um, was worried that the ship would not have enough food or water for the balance of the trip, so he threw 133 living mm. slaves overboard. Mm. In fetters uh, as well. It ended, right. up, ended up in court in London, mm. but not on a charge of mass murder, rather That's on right. an insurance claim. Yeah, on an insurance The insurance company said, no, 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 the market value of slaves has fallen. And, um, of course, the Zorg was, I think, in the 1790s or thereabouts, mm. and William Wilberforce was actively campaigning against slavery. And he was good friends with Turner as well. And, and in 1807, I think it was, um, the English Parliament passed legislation which effectively ended slave 
um, ownership. Now, interestingly about that, um, there was a case in the 1790s, I think, um, about exactly that proposition, and that case said that if ever a slave enters a free state, their condition of slavery is forever dissolved. Um, right. You know, the air of England is too pure for a slave to breathe, that sort of thing. Uh. And um, in the middle of the 1800s, um, a bloke called Dred Scott, who was an African-American slave, owned by a doctor, um, he had been carted into both to the northern states and the southern states in America, and he died and his property, including Dred Scott, was left to his wife. His wife didn't want a slave, so she gave him to her brother, whose name was Sanford. And Dred Scott brought an application in the... that ended up in the US Supreme Court, um, in effect seeking to rely on this English case and also pointing to the... Um, United States Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. The Supreme Court heard the case twice and they said in one of the decisions that where the Declaration of Independence said all men are created equal, that did not include African-American men and they knocked out his case. In any event, the fact is that the Dred Scott case turned out to be one of the triggers for the American Civil War and, of course, famously the Gettysburg Address said this really is about seeing whether um, we can survive with a Declaration of Independence that says that all people are created equal. Although it's arguable that it didn't work because it was not until very recently, arguably the Black Lives Matter movement, that any sort of equality between African Americans and white Americans has been recognised. Mm. With the Black Lives Matter movement, have there been any significant changes in legislation that have been achieved? Um, in Australia? No, in, in America. Oh, I don't know. I, I doubt it. Because it would be a shame not to take advantage of the momentum to actually affect. Yeah. Well, the question is whether they need a change in legislation or whether the what they need is a change in attitude. And mm, culture. Yeah. And I suspect they need a change in their culture. Similar to the way it's much harder for a um, man to get away with sexually harassing a woman post the Me Too movement. Yep. Hopefully it'll be a lot harder to get away with abusing an African-American. If someone filmed it. If yes. someone filmed it. Well, <laughs> now we've all got cameras, so... Yes. Hopefully that gets easier and easier. Uh, go back to what you were saying before, though. Why do you think uh, art is so powerful uh, in, in all forms? And do you think some art forms are more uh, powerful in... Uh, elucidating a response than others? Um, I don't think some forms are more powerful. Um, the, the music um, has the advantage that I mentioned before about the Mendelssohn second trio. Um, painting obviously can depict things that people don't want to see. They just don't want to know about it. Painting also has the advantage of it. I mean, if I want to show you a... Uh, a song that I've written, you have to sit down for four minutes, a painting you yep. can take in within five seconds. And more than that, a painting gets its message through directly, whether or not you want to hear the message. Mm. Um, 
I suppose in principle, you can if if you begin to get the idea of what's being conveyed in a piece of music, you can get up and walk away. Mm. What are some of your favourite uh, works of art from history? Um, and your favourite artists? Yeah, I'm all for ranking. <laughs> I'm. I mean, my my favourite art form is music. I think. Mm. Um, my favourite composer, I guess, is Beethoven. Um, and that's sort of just by accident. Um, in visual art, I guess my favourite period is probably the Romantic era. People like Cezanne, who yeah, did yeah. number one. Yeah. Cezanne, Monet, Van Gogh. Um, but that probably just reflects where I started and how I was educated. Um, and despite the fact that my interest in music focuses on Beethoven and moves outwards from there, uh, and the only 20th century composer who I really, really enjoy is Shostakovich, mm-hmm. um, notwithstanding all of that, um, I make a point of trying to commission a couple of pieces of music every year. Um, most of them I haven't heard, um, but I reckon being a composer would be one of the hardest jobs ever. Yeah, that and directing, I feel, are, are two jobs I just could never do. Directing. Directing movies and yeah. uh, being a composer was just too much going on. Well, at least directing movies, you you may turn up like to be something like Herman Mankiewicz and be the mm-hmm. subject of a film yourself. Um, but, you know, I, I would have thought anything in the arts is difficult enough, um, which is a travesty. But... Um, even if you're a poet, even if no one reads your poetry, you can put it all together in a book. Mm. If you're a composer, you'll write stuff and people may or may not listen to it. You can't hang it on the wall of a gallery. You can't put it in a book because no one's going to read it. It's quite depressing. Yes. So, uh, but they keep on doing it. So I reckon composers need support. Mm. With uh, Cezanne and uh, Van Gogh, I've, I've always thought that they were amongst the bravest in the Western canon of art because they were the first to really break from uh, a representative uh, style. I mean, the, the Impressionists did before that, but it was still, I've often, you know, the, the Impressionists just, uh, are still quite pretty pictures in yep. a lot of ways, yep. whereas Cezanne, Van Gogh, moving into Gauguin after the, that became the ugly. post-Impressionists, yeah. 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 Mm. Uh, that's true. That took a lot of courage. And they suffered for it. I mean, it's not widely known, but Cezanne was... Uh, I think he was in an accommodation in an attic room somewhere in the south of France and he couldn't pay the rent. And so the landlord kicked him out and Cezanne's walking off down the driveway. The owner went up to his room, discovered some of his paintings had been left, so he hurled them out the window at him. (laughs) That's the the, the famous story about Van Gogh's paintings being used to board up chicken coops in (laughs) the south of France. Yes. Now they're worth $100 million. Yeah, Hmm. Well, they get $100 million. Whether they're worth it is another uh, question. Very good point. Very good point. Did you see that uh, Salvatore Mundi, the uh, Leonardo that went for $500 million about four years ago? Um, I've not seen the original piece. Beautiful think, painting, but yeah. there, there's a lot of suspicion that it's actually a forgery <laughs> and it yeah, sold for <laughs> half a billion dollars. It's sort of, I know it's kind of quite satisfying to hear that yes. <laughs> for some, for yes. some reason. Yeah. Good to know a billionaire's wasting his money. 
Yes. Yeah. Who do you like most out of the uh, Renaissance giants? Raphael, Leonardo or Michelangelo? Um, well, Michelangelo is pretty remarkable because he covered such a wide area. Mm-hmm. Um, Leonardo is also very impressive because he thought a lot about stuff. Uh, Never finished his stuff, though, which is what I've always held against him. I mean, there's so many incomplete pieces, whereas you look at the scale of what Michelangelo achieved and, you know, 3,000 square feet, yeah. the Sistine ceiling and yeah. the David at 25. And... But ultimately the question is this. Um, what comes of a society that treats its artists badly? And I think the answer is it's not a society that's going to survive very long in memory. But don't you think it produces great art at the same time? I mean, someone like Ai Weiwei um, makes great art primarily because he's, I mean, the whole relationship between him and the CCP is at the heart of what makes his art great. Hmm. Isn't great art made in moments of uh, political turmoil and civil strife? Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, I should have, because I Weiwei did my portrait one time. Did he? Yeah. What is that? Oil painting. Um, I think it's an oil. Was it as good as mine? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I won't say anything. Don't about you don't that. have to say. <laughs> um, no, that's an interesting point that I Weiwei. Um, and even something like uh, Picasso was, you know, persona non grata and. Uh, Nazi-occupied France when he yeah. painted Guernica and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Well, even so, I think it behoves all of us to work out ways to make society more accepting of what artists do. We have to recognise that they will be remembered long after we are forgotten. Mm. And I think that's very important. And there's room in that panoply for uh, people who do very lifelike portraits. Mm, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's because um, people often, I think all photos are going to be, if you know, any photo of you, well, maybe not of you, but the photo of the average person or uh, on whether it's on Facebook, whether it's even a film photograph is prob- probably not going to exist in 100 years. Uh, but because of the... Uh, respect that's given to art in all forms, those are the things that are going to be around in 500 years, a painting of someone, a sculpture of someone, a, yep. a piece of music, whatever. Yep. Yep, that's true. It's got a longevity. Longevity is important, especially right now. Well, actually, arguably, it's less important now because how much longer this race of ours will survive is an interesting question. I was very interested during the... COVID-19 episode, Australian governments went to great lengths to make sure that COVID-19 was beaten and we've done it pretty well. Mm. Um, Now, we know that COVID-19 threatens the lives of roughly 1% of the population. Why has no Australian government said anything, said or done anything serious about climate change which threatens the lives of 100% of the population. Doesn't serve their interests, I guess. Um, I suspect that that's right because they've got 
they've got supporters in the fossil fuel industry. Um, but also, they, I suspect that part of it is that they reckon that the real crunch is going to happen after they've disappeared. Mm. You'd know better than most. I've had this discussion with my friends a few times throughout this year. You'll often hear people say that when a government enacts laws, they're very reluctant to repeal them. So uh, whether that's the Dan Andrews government putting in uh, laws to ostensibly combat COVID but give them um, uh, far more overreaching powers, is that a, a valid suspicion to have that those laws won't be uh, repealed uh, once they're no longer necessary? Um, and not specifically with Dan Andrews, but just with governments in general? Look, I, it depends in part on how the laws have been framed and whether they can be used for ulterior purposes. So I think it's difficult to generalise about that. But um, when you consider that um, uh, I would be worried in Victoria, for example, where we've got a Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities, I'd be worried if the laws that relate to coronavirus were applied similarly in order to, quote-unquote, protect us from climate change. I think that um, the sort of human rights restrictions that we've tolerated in order to combat coronavirus would not be referable to combating climate change. I'm saying more would they be used to... um Power is obviously an intoxicating thing uh, for anyone, uh, especially a government. I'm saying if... Would they say they uh, enact laws where they can just walk through your house without a warrant? Once COVID's no longer a threat, would uh, police still uh, reserve the right to be able to do that? I would hope not. Hmm. You, you really would hope that uh, laws like that would be repealed when circumstances no longer justified the existence of those laws. That's why I refer to climate change, because I live with this dread that a government thinking these powers are very useful might start using them uh, in order to defeat, or ostensibly to defeat climate change in circumstances where uh, climate change would be unaffected by them. What do you mean? Sorry. Well, um, restriction of ordinary human rights in order to combat a common enemy is justifiable. Like during the Blitz in London during the Second World War, uh, it was mandatory to close your curtains if you had lights on inside at night. Because that would guide the bombers. Exactly, exactly. Now, um, that's a good example of individual rights being compromised by a common threat. Now, the common threat with the coronavirus was pretty obvious. And I think, for the most part, most of the restrictions that we all faced were justifiable in combating mm. that threat. But if the threat is different, if the coronavirus is defeated, and if the threat that's wheeled out in support of these things is climate change, then I'd say that the restrictions are no longer justifiable. justifiable. I hadn't even considered that. Jesus, that's a scary thought. 
it was um, it was interesting to what you were just saying about uh, during the blitz being forced to close the curtains. Um, I think might be wrong, but I think it was Orson Welles uh, said that the greatest victory of fascism is that it forces its opponents to become fascists themselves. <laughs> yes, well. Um, I guess there's a difference between voluntarily being a fascist and being forced into it, but it's an yeah. interesting thing to note about. Yeah, it's a good observation. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, uh, Julian. It's been uh, great to talk with you, great to catch up with you, and, um, yeah, really, I think I think this... Uh, this kind of conversation will go a long way to uh, giving people that kind of a visceral um, experience of uh, what it's like for uh, asylum seekers and refugees and... Um, and what it's like for artists. And what it's like <laughs> for artists, yes. Yeah. About which you can speak much more powerfully yes. than I can. Yes, they'll hear a lot more from me about it. <laughs> Thanks a lot.